You're listening to the following program on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network, where independent creators and fans of fantasy, sci-fi, horror, and gaming meet to create, stream, and support the shows that they love. Creator-distributed, fan-supported, that's TFN. Find this and many more great programs at watch.thefantasy.network slash audio. When we say something is history, we often mean that something is firmly in the past, settled, and never to bother us again. Why anyone would think that is beyond me, so here we are again with another episode of Vorpal History. We're going to slice and dice the past until the confetti is less confusing than the metaphor I'm trying to make here. I'm your host, Ashford Wilhelm, very amateur historian, and owner of a disturbingly large collection of non-winning Taco Bell Phantom Menace Pogs. I was told sharing an odd fact about myself would help establish a more trusting relationship with the audience. I was told sharing an odd fact about myself would help establish a more trusting relationship with the audience. If it's working, then I have one of the first Magic 8 balls produced, the model they had to recall for predicting too many deaths to be classified legally as a toy or amusement. So anyway, when we last left off, the Dunwellmish colony had been founded more or less. The colonists had records of at least one previous settlement where they'd come ashore, they'd unearthed the foundations and buildings that they were putting to use, and their leader, Callum Stonecarp, had set up shop in a grand mansion-like structure that was in the midst of being excavated. His scribe, Lannis Caxton, had been directed to fix up this new city hall, and we join him as he's getting accustomed to his new workplace. We also find that Lord Stonecarp has been busy with an addition of his own, mostly to the honorifics his position of authority commands. Prose Day, the 23rd of Inver. At last, the marble writing desk his lordship has commanded I use has been cleaned and restored. I did this in my spare time, which was defined as after the newly renamed Supreme Regent and Governor's Office was presentable. Our expedition may have lost its best cooks in the voyage, but we managed to find buckets and scrub brushes in our stores. Fortune truly smiles upon us. Between our magicians and blacksmith under protest, we have had glass windows crafted for what is likely to become our town hall. The original windows left behind the remains of leaded framework and finely cut shapes in a myriad of colors. Our current level of craftsmanship is only able to provide cloudy blocks of fused beach sand that are fitted to the sills with whatever dross can be coaxed from a heated crucible. It makes the windows look a bit like cataract-covered eyes that are weeping pitch, but at least some light gets through. Once my profession of scullery surf was put on hold, I returned to the work of chronicling the history of Dunwellnish. I should note that while I found many clever cubbyholes, shelves, and other places for the storage of scrolls, books, and documents, I didn't find a single scrap of paper or page. It might explain why the hearths were so soot-blackened for several feet into each room. I write this entry on a very fine marble desk set into the floor, carved with winged beasts and scholarly figures taking quill to parchment. We believed the inkwell to have been permanently stained, but in cleaning it we found that it has been enchanted to refill when enough water is added. One of the necromancers has expressed interest in the way this works, saying they're very fond of liquids. I convinced Lord Stonecarp to only see such people when I'm not in. Speaking of, 
when I'm allowed to collapse into a heap in my shipsail tent, I've returned to find more and more of our town hall unearthed and the dirt relocated. Given that Lord Stonecarp's two servants aren't dead from exhaustion, I was at a loss to record just how such work was being done without prisoners being involved. Lord Stonecarp has ordered that I cease inquiring about this matter, and if I do not, I'll be writing up more records of his mealtime repasts. Apparently, there are more important things to set down in ink. The Palisade Erection Committee is at odds with the newly created Dunwellmish Planning and Excavation Committee, as the former cannot permanently build a defensive wall until the latter is sure they found the last of the potentially useful buried buildings in the area. Now that we are more familiar with what to look for, the hilly terrain is somewhat haunting as it represents a bit of an architectural graveyard. Others aren't so concerned and claims have been laid to the larger mounds under which largely intact constructions have been found. The fact that there are far more buildings than we currently need has been hailed by Lord Stonecarp as a sign that this colony has prospered before and can do so again. This is a sentiment that many share, as my lordship tells me while reading over my shoulder. Today, Lord Stonecarp dined on a kind of pheasant-like bird, roasted with mushrooms and onions for his midday repast, and let that be a lesson to me. One of our original expeditions returned today, for the most part, though there were some oddities about their accounting for their absence. For one, they claimed to have only been gone for two days, which did explain their surprise at the existence of our tavern, guild hall, city hall, and town square fountain. A note of thanks to the Church of Nalen for giving us their deity's favor in restarting the fountain to have ever-flowing water, and the Church of Aura for blessing the water such that it carries no disease. The Church of Nalen would like it noted that their position is that such a blessing wasn't necessary, and that those sickened by the first draughts from the fountain were ill from malingering residue of some kind. Both churches have petitioned to have icons erected atop the fountain, a proposal that Lord Stonecarp has tabled until such time as the churches can work out a means and schedule of changing out any iconography on at least a weekly basis. Those from the first expedition were thoroughly examined by both clergy and magician, deemed to be who they claimed to be, and not horrific spawns of darkness sent to confuse and sow chaos. This reduced interest in them significantly from most of our populace, who took comfort that such strangeness likely meant that there were places to loot and foes to defeat. The final event of the day was one that resulted in such calamity that it may be some time before my next proper entry. While unearthing what was taken to be some kind of manor house near the newly restored fountain, it was discovered to be a money-changer's edifice. Those who made this discovery somehow thought that no one would notice a sudden influx of currency where none had been before, and agreed to secretly divide all they found within. The vault door proved to be more than a match for those armed with shovels and picks resulting in the need for several rituals of healings and limb reattachment. The vault door was found to be enchanted against being opened by unauthorized hands, Lord Stonecarp demanded that the door unlock, and it did so, apparently at his authority. With the wisdom of someone who has just opened a huge trove of wealth in front of a large group of people with ready access to sharp objects, he embarked on a speech regarding the proper division of a portion of these funds to the colony, while keeping the bulk in reserve to prevent sudden inflation. I suspect Lord Stonecarp may have once been a bard, for his words seem to have a calming effect beyond that of reason and greed. Even the least mentally apt among our number agreed that everyone having a pile of coin to keep safe in makeshift tents and half-buried homes wasn't desirable, so the money was largely left where it was. I was thankfully able to pass off the duties of creating account documents for everyone to some newly deputized bank clerks. None seemed terribly concerned that this lost settlement's bank 
remained untouched by whatever calamity befell the place. At least it was swift, remarked our reluctant blacksmith. I suspect he wouldn't mind a second burial of the colony. At least we wouldn't have to worry about nails that shatter when sneezed upon. I think uh, this shows how much a part of our ancestors' culture was looting what they dug up without much thought. We still have that going on in some of the shadier parts of the world, of course, where it's finders keepers on old temples and any areas below basement level. Uh, fun fact, no private insurer will cover your house if you've got any space under it that's lower than 12 feet. Something about burrowing hazards or creating habitat for anti-structural organisms. It's kind of like flood insurance where you have to get some special deal with the government, I think. But uh, anyway, the coins that uh, experts have verified to have been in the bank came from three different colonial expeditions, each having their own struck faces and tails. Uh, no one at Dunwellness seemed to have noticed or cared about that. I guess it wouldn't have helped to panic or worry anyway, but it's something that would have had me wondering a little bit more about what had happened to the bank's previous customers. But again, these were largely people who'd grown up with part of their family income derived from going out and bashing heads or whatever. There's a lot of debate about if the Dunwellmish colony succeeded in spite of this apparent disregard for omens of doom, or because of it. Or maybe someone was watching over this latest version of the colony. Well, let's see what happened next, according to Scribe Caxton. Day, Inver the 24th. The newly named First Continental Bank had at least one attempted robbery during the night, as evidenced by the discovery of multiple body parts scattered near the vault door. The newly commissioned First Continental Bank Accounting and Teller Guild suggested the hiring of a guard. The job of said guard would be to warn any future thieves about what happened to the previous ones, and to have them sign some kind of identification form so the next of kin can be notified. I should point out that calling anything continental at this point is somewhat premature, as we could be on a very large island for all we know. Also, Lord Stonecarp appears unconcerned that no one knows exactly how the bank's security wards work, apart from them not going off when the colonial governor and his newly appointed bank president orders them to allow access. For the moment, our lord plans on rising early each morning to walk to the bank and unlock the vault for the day's business, returning just before sundown to secure the vault for the night. To protect the valuables in the bank during business hours, the clerks were hired from those with experience in both accounting and the tactical use of applied violence. They have been encouraged to not practice both simultaneously. The vault has yielded something Lord Stonecarp's reclaimed manse did not. Documents. The few scrolls and parchments that were found weren't written chronicles or other personal items of the previous residence, as those might give us elusive things like insight and knowing what might be going on. Instead, we found an odd collection of works in unknown languages that our magicians and more sage-like citizens say appear to be centuries old. These were scrolls that our two clergy members demanded be put into their care immediately, which led to a heated meeting with Lord Stonecarp that I wasn't allowed to attend. The map was what sparked the most interest, even though the script was indecipherable. Even the spells supposedly designed to reveal the meaning of foreign glyphs. Upon the revelation that a map of any sort had been found, my desk was surrounded by very intense and quite loud colonists, demanding that they take ownership of it to better defend the colony, spy out what might be hidden nearby, and to prevent someone from using my innards as garlands. To not leave the colony immediately and completely undefended, Lord Stonecarp held a lottery for those who would be given copies of the map that I was already busy creating, 
while admiring the craftsmanship on numerous weapons pointed in my direction that I can't believe were allowed on a sailing vessel the owner never expected to see again and had heavily insured the week before. Bands of colonists, who assured us they were only interested in reconnaissance and not plunder, were given leave in shifts so as not to depopulate Dunwellmish in a single stroke. Those who drew later shifts voiced their protests, which were met with pointing out how our net population has been slowly diminishing, and if they'd like to do something about it, they should know what actions were required. Those who didn't understand the concept of population growth were given hushed verbal instructions which shall not be recorded here. I do suspect that this lack of apparent knowledge goes hand in hand with the apparent difficulty some have had in trying to successfully raise livestock. Just to chime in, some of those map copies still exist and are valuable collector's items. The ink work is really well done, though you can kind of tell he was in a rush and probably nervous while he was transcribing. The original was deemed too dangerous to be put on public display for reasons that will become obvious. And while we don't have a transcript of the sex education that was given out, Lannis later published a book called A Guide to Perpetuating One's Family Lineage, subtitled, Though If This Guide Is Needed, Perhaps That's Not a Great Idea. It's been called one of the greatest obfuscating metaphors for adult interaction that's ever been written, as it somehow goes over the basics of having sex, while never actually saying that's what's going on. It's still used today as a model for how to say something without explicitly saying it, mostly by lawyers. It was used in schools until studies showed that unless students were nudged and given knowing smiles or other cues, they had no idea what they were being taught had anything to do with the birds and the bees. Scholars are still debating whether or not Lannis was kind of prudish or if he didn't want to run afoul of the clergy seeing that they were the sole source of health care. Still, talk about a balancing act. I wish he'd been around for some holiday meals I've attended during election years. But back to the map. The first bunch of map winners were sent out and here's what was recorded afterwards. Now streaming on the Fantasy Network on TFN Audio, it's Vorpal History. Every episode we take a look at historical events so fantastic you might even think they were true. We start with the founding of the Dunwellmish colony in North America by unwanted adventurers, explore how necromancy shaped future conflicts, and take a look at the effect that talking animals have had on events worldwide. So come along on our delving into the obscure, the arcane, and the unbelievable things that we're pretty sure happened on Vorpal History. The past has never been more magical. Vorpal History on the Fantasy Network. Creator-distributed, fan-supported. Stone Day, the 26th of Inver. One of the lucky map-bearing bands returned today, or should I say most of it did. Those that were still alive carried or dragged the remains of those they wanted restored to life, paying nominal fees of treasure and promises of service to Nalan or Aura depending on their faith or bargaining position. Me again, just wanting to highlight that this is where scholars think these scandalous uh, clerical errors, in air quotes, probably started but that won't come out for a while. And it's not like they were alone in doing things that weren't exactly above board, right? While the churches and descendants of the colony still deny any wrongdoing, a ledger was written around this time called Servants of the Living. And while there are a few names, the fact that all of the entries are basically lists of body parts that total mostly to one body raises a few eyebrows. Uh, but the whole subject will be tackled in a future episode. Anyway... This is why medical waste disposal is really important, folks. Back at it.
The maps appear to lead to a location about two days' hard march from Dunwellmish, or about half of that, at a panicked run. At first they were reticent to speak of their experiences, as they feared someone would ninja their loot, a phrase heard far too often over tankards of ale for my comfort. It was eventually agreed that the original band of map users would accompany the next wave to lend their experiences to the success of this secondary force. Then it was decided a scribe should sally forth with this hale and hearty group, as someone else could fill in writing down what would some day be Lord Stonecarp's Dunwellmish Founder's Cookbook. This volume is still in print from Caxton Publishing, mostly out of spite. The trek to our destination avoided the area with the time loop, thankfully. Only one of our number vanished without anyone noticing until the end of the first day, and this was agreed by most to be acceptable losses given the circumstances. The second day saw our party increased by two as compared with the number when we left Dunwellmish. It was found to be far more disconcerting that no one could determine who had not been with our group the night before. Apparently, scribes are targets for abuse, when others had the brilliant idea of taking a census after such information would have been useful. Pointing out that no one can recite the names of everyone present without prompting or making guesses based on physical features earned me no friends. It was decided that no list of names should be taken unless our group's population should drop again. The reasoning being that more people makes for a more combat-capable force, and questioning the phenomena might cause it to stop. Should anyone find this record without me present, know that whatever befell us was most certainly not my fault. Neither magician nor servants of the gods, the churches have begun training adepts, was able to sense anything amiss, though both admitted that it was difficult to sense evil in this new land, as it could have a foreign accent. I'm not sure if this is a valid concern. Before the second day had finished, one of our scouts, Kitvoldara, reported seeing a figure in black with a reddish sigil on their torso. The dark figure had been spied on a nearby ridge, but had vanished by the time Kit and several others had reached it. From this vantage, however, they were able to see the map's ultimate destination. We beheld a temple of most unusual design. It was as large as some villages back home, and it was being swallowed by the foliage and terrain. Nature appeared to not want to choke it down entirely, as large sections remained uncovered by both soil and plant, as if repulsed by the thought of consuming the structure. As with the other excursion, I reluctantly accompanied trees that appeared to be made of agonized visages, and twisted limbs were found at the edge of the temple grounds. Those who had been to this place before confirmed they had seen these disturbing growths, and had gone ahead anyway. If there is one thing that I can think of that unites all the two-armed, two-legged, one-headed races we know of, it's that at least some segment of each has decided to be attracted to that which warns others away. Apparently, that's where one finds the good stuff, or so I'm assured. Leading this delve into the mostly unknown is a seasoned warrior who wishes to be recorded hereafter as Ulrith Trueblade. Names are funny things in these chronicles, as a lot of people who made the crossing to the new-ish world were hoping to reinvent themselves to some extent. Others would rather their true identities not be known, since it was a royal decree that laws broken in colonial outposts were laws broken in the homeland, and vice versa. So trying to guess which expats uh, from both sides of the ocean are the same people is a fun game to play. Uh, though when some people can live for hundreds of years, it can get tempting to put a, a room full of names under one persona. 
It was convenient for law enforcement, but that's a little less rigorous. Ulrith Trueblade came from the Cleponian steppes, was schooled in the ways of combat by those at the Hall of Furinor, and claimed his magic blade and armor from the trove of the Troll King, Sedimentus III. This episode is a ton of footnotes. Okay. Troll hierarchies are a little more complicated than the usual noble houses they show on costume dramas, mostly owing to their ability to regenerate, as well as eat most people who make inquiries about how they live and structure their society. R.I.P. those brave BBC film crews. Sedimentus was called king because he'd led several war bands that had been chronicled in the past, and was called the third because a troll with that name was defeated on three occasions and then had a similar-looking troll show up years later to avenge said defeat. Uh, could have been the same one if his body hadn't been properly disposed of, and troll revenge looks a lot like trolls attacking for all the other possible reasons, so it's muddy. But they do tend to have a lot of treasure from their military successes, so when you combine that with their ability to regrow themselves from just about anything not involving acid or fire, they're considered something of a renewable resource. With four other swordmasters at his flanks, followed by a few magicians, rogues, and others of various skills and weaponry, Ulrith led us to the temple grounds. Overhead, arches of greenish stone that looked more like enormous ribs or tusks cast ominous shadows on our company. Sharp spires broke the sky deeper into the temple grounds, though we never saw a means to reach them. We voted down requests to remove the large green gemstones at the tops of the arches, which appeared to be faintly glowing even in the afternoon sun. A voice from our group called out, noting that touching the stones was a very bad idea indeed, accounting for several of the bodies brought back to Dunwellmish. The voice belonged to Salka Shadol, someone who apparently had not only survived the first expedition, but had observed the many and varied means by which his companions had been rendered inert, sometimes in multiple pieces. Salka prided himself on being what amounted to a valuables relocation specialist, which I decided meant that I'd need to check my pockets repeatedly when he was nearby. Avoiding the verbal abuse I would no doubt endure by suggesting Salka have Ulrith's ears who went further, I instead asked him to list the things that he knew we should avoid or be cautious of. His list included the aforementioned green rocks, intact statuary, Doors with angry eyes carved in them, being directly underneath any open-mouthed sculptures, stone floors with patterns like that of a game board, containers of viscous black liquid as well as the liquid itself, anywhere you start to hear whispering that isn't from you or your companions, anything giving off smoke anywhere where you are alone, sounds of other people being killed, and the thing in the underholes. That last item caused much consternation and comment that most of it seemed to be full of eagerness to inquire about what this thing might be willing or otherwise to part with. Ulrith demanded to know in which direction the underhalls lay. Salka replied that it was to the east, past the still wet smears on the ground, beyond the mostly sprung traps in a hallway of stained glass, down some stairs and into a chamber that appeared to be for the burial of whoever used this temple last. Salka admitted this was the last he saw of the interior deciding that it was time to depart and report back to the colony on his first approach. Ulrith appeared to change strategies, opting for a less direct approach and one that emphasized being on guard for what might be lurking in wait. 
Even with this as their primary plan, Itava number fell to impalement, magical disintegration, and some form of wirebase trapped the assassins and rogues in our group are very keen to prize out of the walls for further examination. Markers were set out to show the clearest path, but Sulkin noted that his group had done the same, yet no sign of said guidance remained. I instead included a crude map in the pages of this record to be used for our eventual and helpful egress. One might question my venturing into the underholes, given my previous desire to stay away from all places shrouded in peril. It was that or be the only person left on the ground floor to guard the way back. Salka suggested that we could start running, but he reasoned that he'd had other people doing the same with him, perhaps providing better targets than he for whatever lurked in the forests. The denizens of this temple did bury their dead here. Our novice priests became very agitated upon descending the well-worn stairs to the burial niches and the depths beyond. We tarried a moment, and let them place holy sigils and prayer wards across the stone sarcophagi in the hopes that whatever was in them would stay there. A few of the holy marks began smouldering, which was seen as a positive sign for some reason. Another descent, this from worked stone into natural caverns, here as if the walls were a living thing passing into putrescence, black ichor flows from the stone itself and runs in carved troughs at the floor. Urns and other vessels are nearby, suggesting someone or something collects this substance. Salka reminds us not to touch it, which is about as necessary to remind one to not place one's head in a hornet's nest and set it on fire. At last we came to an enormous set of double doors, carved in a terrifying fashion to resemble a mass of creatures whose body mass must have been composed primarily of angered eyes. Salker began to tremble, remembering that he'd made it this far before something had gone wrong, hence his warning about portals such as these. And yet, true to his profession, he completely understood the desire to open them, going so far as to offer advice and produce several pouches and bags in anticipation of filling them. A young mage, going by the name of Rezivir, noted that the sigils on our map could be traced using the eyes of the monstrosities on the door's surface. I confess that when they began touching the doors and watching the eyes light up with each connected line, I became a little light-headed. The floor seems a bit unsteady. What happens next is a little hard to piece together, which isn't surprising given the state of that part of Massachusetts even this day. Our reports of people with altered memories or claims that they're from another reality are still being made to the media and authorities, but then again, that's happening everywhere. The reports, I mean, not that it actually happens. In a future episode, we'll get into what is and isn't known about the suspected location of the Mystery Temple and what's in that location today. It's pretty wild, or isn't, depending on what sources you look up. I don't want to spoil anything, but whenever someone says some place or other is haunted or dangerous for anyone with a soul, that kind of stuff, I first look to the nearby property values. If you can't afford a house there, and the EPA hasn't said it'd be safer to visit an oxygen bar inside of an asbestos plant, then it's probably fine. Anyway, this brings me to another point of contention about Caxton's narrative in that he seemed deeply devoted to writing down everything he could as he went, but at this critical juncture his handwriting becomes uncharacteristically, well... Seismic, before resuming sometime later. So you've got the one camp of scholars that understands why our scribe might put down the quill for a bit, while others point to many other documents where the ink keeps flowing right up until the hand scrawling across the page writes something like, And it's almost upon me, oh no, I... Ah! The former suspects this might be embellishing what happened after mulling it over, while the latter points to him having a healthy sense of self-preservation most of the time. Whatever the case, he's back to writing the following day. Ignore City, 
the audio fiction rock musical, is now part of the Fantasy Network. In this post-apocalyptic future where technology is outlawed, Devin Rimpa, a scrappy spike messenger, befriends a sentient robot head named Saner0805. She embarks on a grand adventure through Ignore City to save civilization before government agents catch up with her. It's Futurama meets the Terminator, but with singing. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and podcast platforms everywhere. What follows is, to the best of my recollection, what happened after the adventurers I traveled with did whatever they did to the door beneath the temple. At first, the door was content to glow with the various symbols Resivier described with his finger, I think. Then either the ground began to tremble, or something in our packed food rations took that moment to dislodge my equilibrium for a moment. I can remember the doors starting to open and a breeze rushing downward. Those nearest the door were either running in, being pulled in, or possibly getting smaller. It was difficult to tell with the screaming and some kind of vast roaring noise. What I experienced is not easy to put down in words to fully encompass the effects at play. It's much like how one cannot document the complete bodily trauma of crossing an ocean while consuming gruel made from everything except, hopefully, deceased crew members, and having one's innards over the side of the ship while surrounded by one's own unwashed miasma, as well as that of dozens of others without resorting to profanity. Note, the following account is from Magician Resivere, as told most earnestly to me, Lannis Caxton. When the threshold opened, the space itself was pulled and folded, with most of our company thrown into confusion. I, with my training in the ways of magic and the higher planes, managed to keep some of my wits about me. I enhanced my senses as best my art allowed, and saw with eyes unbound by mundane limitations. I beheld something, though if it were god or beast I cannot say. It reached out through small spaces into our material world, able to alter the weave of what the untrained think of as the cosmos. For a brief moment I touched it, though with my body or mind I cannot say. I could feel it reaching through the cracks in time itself. I saw its tendrils entwined about the lives of all who were here, our descendants and souls across the globe. This was destiny made manifest. For a brief moment I considered reordering the fates that had brought us here, undoing our misfortunes and passing this trial of a colony to someone else. Just as I was about to set my will to this, a voice called out from within the chaos and complexity shaking me to my very essence. Could you not? I heeded the wisdom in this, though I could not resist the temptation to improve my own lot at least a little bit. It was not wealth or a more comfortable life that I sought, but a means to improve myself. Before so many mysteries were closed to me, now I understand that those were just the beginning of what I could grasp. Random chance has purpose. Nothing is immutable. I can smell colors, and my hair sounds like wind chimes. Rest assured I shall use these newfound gifts in the service of our colony's success. I would like to again stress that the testimony expressed above is that a reservoir and does not reflect those of this or any other scribe. I couldn't begin to say what blue smelled like, though I think it felt like overly starched bedsheets for some reason. At any rate, reservoir was most insistent that I take down his words, and in the interests of him finding other things to do, I agreed. Note, his hair sounds no more or less like wind chimes than anyone else's. I fear he may bear watching, perhaps warranting inclusion on Lord Stonecarp's. Let's wait and see if they return in a few days before dispatching search parties list. To continue, after whatever happened, happened, we found ourselves in a campsite about half a day's march back towards Dunwellmish. 
Almost all of us recalled what had happened up to a point. Salker noted much the same happening during the previous excursion, but with more running and yelling rather than camping and befuddlement. It was decided that everyone should return to Dunwellmish to collect ourselves before pressing further into the unknown. I should note that this chronicle apparently was lost to me when the door was opened, as it wasn't on my person when we more or less arrived in our camp. I had gone to a nearby cluster of trees to relieve myself when a figure in black with a crudely drawn red eye on its chest appeared out of the woods. It held a finger to where its lips would be, if it were not covered in ebony bark-like plates. It then handed me my record of my quill, and a parchment scroll before disappearing back into the foliage. The scroll is yet another map, crudely drawn and lacking any eye-watering runes. It appears to show our colony and a path to the north and west, with a large X near what looks like a lake, and another X in a nearby bay that we have yet to explore. I will pass on this new information to Lord Stonecarp and feign illness if I must, to remain within our unfinished palisade for at least a week. I fear I might actually have suffered something akin to Reservoir's mind-altering episode, as I'm certain a squirrel that spied our group uttered a profanity before dashing into the undergrowth. I shall inquire if the two churches have anything on offer for one's mental health as they do for reattaching limbs. And that's probably where our urban legends of nightclad and other phantoms come from. If you're not from the coast of Massachusetts, you've probably never heard of them having your own neighborhood cryptids and real-life health hazards to deal with. I always found it unusual that the stories never spread much farther than the local area. But is the temple real? Well, that depends on who you ask and where you look. There's evidence it existed at some point, but the accounts are hard to line up with geography, and there's just so much other stuff going on then and now that it wasn't considered much of a priority, if you can believe that. There's a school of thought that it's obscure by design, but that's for another episode. Next time, we'll see where that map goes and find out why the local wildlife might want to drop some bleepable words on anyone arriving by boat. You've been listening to Vorpal History, a look at the fantastical history of the world, which, for all you know, is totally real. Look for Vorpal History on the Fantasy Network or wherever you get your podcasts.